May I speak in the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a real delight to be with you today. I'm just going to say kind of sorry for those who are coming to sit through this a second time. So especially the band. (laughs) Um, We're in a mess. I guess you know that. We are in a mess. But I think one of the insights is if you think about it, we were pretty much in a mess 50 years ago. We were pretty much in a mess 500 years ago. And I haven't done the research, but in Neolithic times 5,000 years ago, I bet they were in a mess then. But one thing about our present day is our mess is a bit more evident, a bit more apparent, and manifest. If I can just give you one example of how our world tends to messiness. I remember years ago, I'm 55. You went to go, wow, you don't look like that. No, no. Anyway, I'm 55. But I can remember at school computers coming in. The excitement of 286 processor computers. And it seemed almost every month or couple of months a new kind of processor would be released or a new operating system was released. There was news coverage of Windows 95 being released. And along with that, there was this immense hope of, you might call it, the kind of the great days that lay ahead when people would be connected on the internet and there'd be kind of democracy around the world. It didn't quite turn out like that, did it? Just look at social media. It's a mess. It's a, I would love, I have to be honest, I was one of the early adopters of Facebook. I would love to get off Facebook. Facebook seems to be a place quite often where there is um, some kind of bullying. There is quite a bit of fake news. Though I'll note that I think of this weekend, there's going to be less of it. And it's a place where, in a sense, we experience almost a dreariness when we see the wonderful lives of everyone else. <coughs> and it seems to me that the book of James, and particularly the verses we had today, address this kind of issue of the messiness of our lives. And James does it by framing a question and then giving an answer. The question was, what causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from your desire that battle, the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. So according to James, one of the sources of mess, at least one of the sources, our battling desires. If you flip back a few verses ago into the previous chapter, you'd see that James has been making a distinction between what is godly wisdom and another kind of wisdom, I put that in quotes, which is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. And now in chapter 4, he, gets to, he seeks to answer the great question of what lies behind our fights and quarrels. And his amazing answer, 
is desire. That's a really strange answer. And he says, we have competing desires within us. Within James's framework, that's the desires that come from God and demonic ones. I just need a glass of water, sorry. Excuse me. <clears throat> I wish I could say this was a dramatic pause, but it's not. Now, this is where this sermon's going to take a little bit of a turn. I want to talk about a particular theologian, actually a French theologian. His name is René Girard. And the reason I want to talk about him is that he spent a lot of time thinking about violence and desire. Or desire and violence. So if we've got James writing about our battling desires that lead to violence, it might be worthwhile thinking about what René Girard have to say about desire and violence. So René Girard died only a few years ago, in 2015. And he's an amazing person. He was like a social anthropologist. He was a studier of literature He was a philosopher, and then he moved into theology and has become quite a significant theologian. And he had an idea that has really opened up a whole load of ideas within the New Testament and the Old Testament. And his idea is, it's got a fancy name, mimeptic desire. Now that's a fancy word for a really, to be honest, simple idea, a simple but subtle idea. And the idea is that all humans, by virtue of us being human, we end up desiring what other people desire. In a sense, desires don't just arise up in us. We, in a sense, we're social animals and we look around and we see other people desiring things and then we want to desire it too. That is, desire is in a sense often copies other desires or it's an imitation or it's imitative. Imitative. Now, we see this with young children. This is where it's really all of us will know this experience. You put two children in a room and they can be quite happily playing with their toys and then one of them will really get excited maybe about, let's say, a pink teddy and will start playing with a pink teddy. What will the other child want to do? The other child will probably stop playing with what they've got and they will want to play with the pink teddy. And what frequently happens, this isn't news, is it? (laughs) They end up arguing. It ends up, in a sense, getting violent. The teddy might be pulled apart even. That's a very simple case of where you might say some one person has seen, in a sense, the desire. You know, that desire here is being used as the kind of the the excitement of playing with a pink teddy of another child and then starts to imitate it or copy it. It's mimetic desire. You see it as you get older. I hope this isn't too uh, rough, but, you know, there's nothing that makes a girl more attractive to a hormonal boy, teenage boy, than other boys seeing the girl as attractive. The metic desire 
is there at the heart of most, most of life, much of drama. You see it in the movies. I want what she's having, if you know when Harry met Sally. Girard's insight, and it actually it's a very interesting insight, is that almost all literature, especially great literature, has as its kind of engine of drama, mimetic desire. He then opened up a Bible and it knocked him for six. Because not only did he see mimetic desire in the, in the drama of the Bible, but he ended up seeing, you might say, the antidote to it too. And then he realized, in a sense, this desire works in all parts of our society, and it does. It's not just children who succumb to competing desires. You might say whole cultures and societies do too. Why do, we might even know it in ourselves, why do we want to rush off, get that itch for the latest iPhone? It's probably because we know someone else desires it or covets it too. Why do we still seek the approval of others even as we get older? Um, I'm going to quote Gerard here. He wrote in French, this is the English translation, um, and I feel I get some kind of gold medal for quoting a French philosopher in a sermon and getting away with it, if I can. But he wrote this, human beings influence each other, and when they are together, they tend to desire the same objects. This is not because these objects are scarce, but because imitation governs desire. And this was written back, I think, in the 60s. Man attempts to create a being out of himself that is essentially based on the desire of his fellow. Wow! We have a temptation to create our own sense of self by looking at others and copying them. Now, this all sounds fairly airy-fairy. If you don't mind my saying, it's kind of French philosophy. Just walk home and forget about it. But the point is, is that these competing desires often end in violence and death. I shouldn't say often, they sometimes do. The violence sometimes between societies that ends up, they've been, in a sense, looking at each other, competing with each other, and ends up in war. And Girard's amazing insight, I mean, we can almost go back to the two children, is that quite often, all that pent-up desire for violence, all that kind of violent thought, gets displaced onto another person. And I'm just going to, I didn't do this in the first time, but imagine, you remember that room with the two children playing over the pink teddy? Imagine another child coming in and walking into those two children saying, hey, What's going on here? They might quite easily turn on that child. That's where there's a sense of scapegoat. And Girard found scapegoats present in literature. He found scapegoats present in society. By by the way, just remember, scapegoat is a biblical word. Um, And crucially, this was his amazing insight. He said that in Jesus, there is the sinless scapegoat, who in a sense 
subverts mimetic desire. Jesus is the one who is, in a sense, the cure for all of this. So let me move on. The kind of key verse we had, I've been using the first verse, verse 1, as my verse from James, and I'm going to move to that, was it verse 7, the key verse? Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Now, I'm going to pivot again, because Gerard not only wrote about mimetic desire, not only did he write about the violence that produces and its resolution as a scapegoat, but he also got quite interested in the idea and the personality of Satan and the devil. And in that sentence, you've got resist the devil. And the question is, what does that mean to you? How often do you hear sermons that, and I said, I, I, I suspect Charlie does, but how often do you hear sermons that actually reference Satan and the devil? Because on the whole, our churches avoid that conversation. But it's there in the text. What are we to make of it? What does it mean? What does it signify to you? Well, this is where I'm going to appeal to René Girard, this French philosopher, once again. Um, he wrote a book called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. And there he addresses, in a sense, what Satan is within this construct of mimetic desire. I'm just going to check. Are you still with me, by the way? Should I be convinced by that, Charlie? <laughs> this is tough stuff, to be honest. I'm not saying it's not. It is tough stuff. But it's really fascinating stuff because these ideas have the possibility to open up huge amounts of meaning in the Bible. And in this book, Gerard writes and answers the question about why is Satan seen as a kind of personal character in the Bible? And he gives this answer, and I think it's insightful. Why do the Gospels in their most complete definition of the mimetic cycle, have recourse to a figure named Satan or the devil rather than an impersonal principle. I think the principal reason is that human subjects as individuals are not aware of the circular process in which they're trapped. How true is that, by the way? We're not aware of this kind of mimetic desire going on until it's named. The real manipulator of the process is mimetic contagion itself. There is no real subject within this mimetic contagion. And that is finally the meaning of the title, Prince of this World. If it's recognized that Satan is the absence of being. Satan is not at all divine. Satan is mimetic contagion as its most secret power. I'm going to make a confession here. I wrote this sermon 
during the last week, and I wasn't quite sure if I was going to do something about Trump or Biden. Trump. <laughs> and I knew I wanted to talk about this thing about competing desires. And I had this quote, but I've read that quote about four or five times, and it's still tough. It's a tough quote. Would you mind if I read it again? <laughs> See if it makes any more sense for a third time for some of you. Why do the Gospels, in their most complete definition of the mimetic cycle, of this kind of stuff, mimesis going on, have recourse to a figure named Satan or the devil rather than an impersonal principle? I think the principal reason is that human subjects as individuals are not aware of the circular processes in which they're trapped. The real manipulator of the process is mimetic contagion itself. Uh, that idea that, in a sense, these desires spread and spawn. There is no real subject within this mimetic contagion. That is finally the meaning of the title of the prince of this world. If it's recognized, and this is where he gets done saying what Satan is, Satan is the absence of being. Satan is not at all divine. Satan is mimetic contagion. A reasonable question for you to ask me is, why have you dipped into a French philosopher like that for a sermon? What good is that for us today? I'm glad to say no one at the previous service asked me that question. I thought someone would. The answer actually is, is that the ideas liberate. They liberate the text. Quite often, we distort the biblical text. And quite often, the biblical text comes in the service of violence. And I'm not just thinking of American presidents waving Bibles after there's been demonstrations. But quite often, the Bible itself can become the tool of violence. And Girard shows us how to read it in an utterly non-violent way. This is Defense for Sunday. It's good to think of how we might cure the endless cycle of violence. We ourselves are not immune to these processes, nor are our societies, nor crucially are our churches. We're not immune to that temptation to see violence as essentially you might say, redemptive, the cure. It's not. What we need is, in a sense, is to accept, the, in a sense, the difficulty of mimetic desire and to realize that in Christ we are released from it. Rolling it back, we do live in a messy world. It has been messy for a heck of a long time. Even the world of faith is at times messy. Anglicanism especially. But we see a way out of the dismal futures that we often see for ourselves with this kind of theology. Amen.